Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a mastermind coach, a strategy and fundraising consultant, a speaker, and an author. And yes, check out my book. It's also called Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. And as a podcast enthusiast, I'd really appreciate your help. We're trying to make this show even better. We've got a survey. Just go to PattonMcDowell.com and you can't miss the pop-up opportunity to click into a survey. It won't take you five minutes, but it will allow you to tell us what topics you'd like to hear more about and other suggestions you might have to make this show more relevant to your nonprofit leadership journey. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Teresa Mitrovic who brings global experience in leadership development from both the corporate and the nonprofit sectors. Now, Teresa and I had to connect across literally 13 time zones, but the wisdom she brings from her current home in Melbourne, Australia, is certainly relevant to you and your nonprofit organization wherever you are in the world right now. Now, as you saw in the title of this episode, Teresa is a champion of the sometimes overlooked leadership skill of building psychological safety and trust. Now, of course, she's going to answer the first question on your mind right now, which is, what does that mean? And maybe secondarily, how do you know if it exists at your organization? And finally, and most importantly, what can you do to make it better? Of course, Teresa reminds us that this is not a touchy-feely organizational development concept. Performance actually improves at organizations that focus on this. And not to mention the critical importance of psychological safety and trust to employee retention. And I don't have to tell you how important that is in an environment of rapid turnover in the nonprofit sector and literally a dilemma that you as a nonprofit leader need to consider. Well, lots of things to consider from this discussion, and you'll want to check out the show notes. This is episode number 171. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources that Teresa and I discussed, as well as find out more about the great work she's doing at the Oro Collective. In fact, she's also added some great resources just for you as a listener of this episode. Without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with Teresa Mitrovic. Teresa, thank you for joining me on the path. Patton, thank you so much for for allowing me to join you on the path. I'm I'm excited about this conversation. We've had some good preliminary discussion and you literally have studied leadership at a global level. Your experience, I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about your journey and, and how you have come to learn some important lessons that I know the nonprofit audience that you and I will be speaking to are going to benefit from. So let's start with what is going to be a headline of this conversation. You really believe in psychological safety and trust as a key element for leadership. When did you come to that conclusion? When did that come into focus for you as a professional? So it, um, I had a kind of breakthrough moment when I was the head of marketing at Hasbro, which was almost two decades ago. Um, and honestly, all I did was add or incorporate coaching into my leadership style, but I did it under heavy duress. I wasn't um, 
I, I was quite a skeptic around coaching and its impact. So I did it under duress. But what I discovered uh, as I made those shifts was that we were progressively working shorter days. We were having a lot more fun. We were doing incredible work, nailing our goals. And we also tripled our profit. And that was the point where I realized that there was something deeper here that we needed to understand, particularly those of us who are quite A-type or quite kind of um, settled in our ways. And those of us who think that we that we're doing a great job as a leader, but we're just it's taking us a long time to get things done. We're working long hours and have heavy workloads. So that was the point at which I thought, you know, I wouldn't have done this had it not been for our general manager sending the senior leadership team on this course. Right. Um, I resisted it. I resisted putting it into practice when I got back. Yet when I did, it had such a, a mind blowing um, impact on myself, my team, and the business that. That was a point I realized I wanted to eventually retrain and start uh, helping other people who are in the same situation as me unlock this kind of experience. But, you know, I, you and I both talked about this, that in for-profit and non-profit, there's often an almost obsessive focus on performance, which I translate mm -hmm. uh, often, we just got to work harder. And, mm -hmm. and to reiterate your point, you found that if there is safety and trust in an organization, we don't have to work as hard and we can be just as successful. But was that kind of the distinction you made? Absolutely. It was kind of one of the breakthrough moments was realizing that we there are a lot of habits that we continue to perpetuate, even though they no longer are as effective or as efficient as, as they used to be. So we get stuck and you know, we we the same old tired your path that we walk. Uh, even though it no longer serves us. So we just keep layering on um, old habit after old habit after old habit. And when you step back, which is, this is what I did with coaching, when you step back to consider um, from an outside perspective, what it is you're trying to achieve and what the team requires in order to successfully achieve it. If when those become your filters, you can really start to shake out all of the, um, all of the nonsense, all of the, um, confusion or the overwork that the duplication of efforts that you would that you'd been previously blind to what you end up with is just this really clean really concise clear structure a clear set of expectations and a conversational model for actually for how you and the team achieve those those outcomes and it actually just simplifies everything so when when you're able to bring psychological safety and trust into the equation as a leader what you're doing is you're taking you're, you're looking at the way that you work with a fresh set of eyes and you're stripping back all of the all of the noise and all of the mess and you're left with just the things that you really need to be doing and when you do that you absolutely lift the workload off people you know make no mistake about it they're still doing the work that they need to be doing they're still delivering against the organizational goals and outcomes but they're doing it much faster and much more enjoyably because they're not having to contend with all of the other noise and nonsense and time-consuming tasks that really don't benefit the organization or themselves much. So it allows you to deeply simplify um, whilst still actually getting the same, if not better, outcomes. So it has real impact around workload, stress levels, all kinds of things. I think you've definitely gotten our listeners' attention. Several words I would <laughs> highlight, overwhelm being the first, because I think in every sector, but certainly the nonprofit sector, often yeah. they're understaffed, under-resourced, so overwhelm can quickly occur. So when you talk about an environment that I can actually focus on the mission of my work, not feel overwhelmed, and enjoy it, 
Uh, that's exactly why I'm glad to have you on this podcast. And well, before we get more into the psychological safety and how to achieve it, um, talk about your consulting practice. Coaching is at its core. Uh, and what mm-hmm. else do you do, Teresa, to help leaders in your work? So my my aim is to get these tools into as many hands of leaders as possible. So I do a few different things. I offer coaching and mentoring for leaders who are keen to adapt their leadership style or the design of their workplace organization so that they too can shift from a purely performance focus into a psychological safety and trust culture. Um, I also have facilitated workshops for leadership teams, and those are designed to help them uh, help leaders understand the basics of psychological safety and psychologically safe performance, and also how you can create genuinely high-performing teams <clears throat> that actually build a culture of psychologically uh, safe performance and trust. But I also have online courses and tools because there are some people who just want to learn and apply things in their own time, you know, and often we want to do that first before we look at doing something, you know, um, that's facilitated or has a coach involved. So um, so I, I try to offer as many different options for people to pick up what they need as I can. And part of that is me- means that we are 100% online and that enables us to reach more people more often. So our clients right now are from organizations large and small and they are based around the world. Well, our listeners may have guessed you and I bring a different dialect to this conversation. In fact, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> we're just... I think you told me what we're 12 or 13 time zones apart. So tell our listeners where you are and talk about some of those organizations you've worked with literally around the world. Sure. So I am based in Melbourne, Australia these days. Um, I got here just before COVID hit. Um, But previous to that, I was living in in New Zealand and before that, London uh, in the UK. So I've worked with a number of different organizations. So um, Everything from government-based organizations in the UK and NZ um, to not-for-profit organizations in London, Melbourne, and New Zealand, uh, to small privately held organizations. Um, it's there's kind of there's been a huge remit. Um, and every organization has their own challenges with regards to where they currently are, the challenges that they're currently facing in terms of you know attracting staff, retaining staff. Um, navigating the the engagement and performance of staff so that they deliver in the ways that they need to for the organization to keep growing and innovating. Um, But also then, of course, all these organizations are faced with this huge kind of global social experiment, which is the the pandemic. Um, So it's, yeah, so everyone's kind of, what's been really interesting about this is that um, it's almost, I was thinking about this this morning, Patton, that or I almost wonder in some ways whether nonprofit organizations may have, in some respects, been stronger than they realized going into the pandemic because nonprofit organizations, as a general rule, tend to always be at some level fighting for their own survival. Right. And I think the rest of the world is now feeling that um, up close and personal. They, you know, many organizations right now are still fighting for their survival. So, uh, but that's that's something that's really kind of that's 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 something that CEOs of non nonprofits experience daily. You know, um, the resilience. Looking for, right. Exactly. Um, so the resilience yeah. that it takes and the strength that it takes. You know, nonprofits are always so much operating so much closer to the bone and feel that they have so fewer so fewer tools with which to 
attract, retain and develop staff. But at the same point, nonprofits are often more so than any other organisation in the space of really being about humans and, and really being about positive, constructive change. And so, um, so, so, you know, I'm sure there are many nonprofit leaders who are sitting right now thinking, gosh, it didn't feel like I was sitting in a strong position when we entered into this. Right. And it, it, often, it won't feel like that. Um, but the, the silver lining, if there is one, is that the strengths that nonprofit leaders already possess um, will have given them a better lens into how to adapt to this environment than organisations who have been able to rely purely on um, cash flow and, and, yeah. and performance-driven performance models, right? Exactly, it's, it's, exactly. Uh, and, and I love how you frame that because I think this is very applicable to the nonprofit sector in any sector. And and there are indeed, I think the encouragement helps as you offer it. But as someone listening, um, you're going to give them, I know, good advice about how to create this culture. Because I talk to too many nonprofit leaders who don't feel a psychologically safe environment. And that, of course, colors mm -hmm. everything they're trying to do. And so let's start with that. You know, I'm a leader listening. Mm -hmm. I want to create this culture. But what exactly is it? When somebody says to you, all right, Teresa, what is it to say a culture of psychological safety? What does that mean? Sure. So um, I, it's probably easy easiest to explain this by contrasting what a performance-based culture looks like and what a culture of psych safety and trust looks like. So yep. let me start let me start there. So you can recognize a performance-based culture as one that treats long hours, back-to-back -back days and heavy workloads as badges of honor. So I think we all know what those feel like. Um, performance-based cultures are often present in organizations that are designed around efficiency, speed and outcomes. So it really it really feels as though when you're in a performance-based culture, 80% of the orientation or the focus is on achievement and 20% yeah. is on the experience, um, the employee experience. When an organization, in contrast, has a culture of psychological safety and trust, that performance aspect is switched. So you still have a performance focus, but instead of being 80%, it's 20%. And the other 80% becomes how do we get there? What's our experience? How do we, how do we actually make the experience of performance? Um, easy and effective. So how do we how do we create a system around us that helps us to be exceptionally successful, but in a way that is as easy and as effective as possible? So on the one hand, it's kind of it's super simple. <laughs> on yeah, the other hand, no. it's quite complex. But that's essentially what you're aiming for. I love that. So, and while changing the number, you're not diminishing performance. And in fact, no. but you're making the experience better. And, and of course, a headline you and I both know and particularly in the nonprofit sector is turnover. So if we're if we're eighty percent mm -hmm. performance based, even though that might be good for a short term, what you're saying is mm -hmm. that ultimately is burning everyone out, right? And and so that psychological safety assures my both my performance and I guess my the, the benefits I feel from working. But is that I'm guessing you see performance based majority in terms of that same percentage breakdown, and that's when those organizations that they can't sustain that. Exactly. It becomes, it, it, this is when people start to offer sign-on bonuses and and um, salary hikes and, and think, you know, they start to think about perks to try to keep people engaged. So that's, you know, that's another sign of a performance-based culture is yes. rather than fixing the system that's creating the problems, they just keep trying to add more carrots. 
throw some money at it and hope that it goes away. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, And, and it's crazy, right? Because there are so many ways that trust changes the the culture of an organization. One of those is that, uh, I don't know, we've spoken about this before, but one of those is when you increase the trust that your team have in the leadership that can equate to a 10% increase in salary for employees. So when you think about being a nonprofit organization who really doesn't have as many resources to play with as a commercial organization might, then you do actually have this, the, the, the ability to, um, to increase or to improve the employee experience, but to actually increase engagement, retention. You're able to attract the right people if you know how to build trust and psychological safety into the organization. Does that manifest itself, Teresa, in ways like, again, the trust would be illustrated that I I trust you to get your job done and I don't need you to stay later and work ungodly hours. Um, I expect you to get the work done, but is is it that, I don't want to say that simple, but what are examples of trust in a work environment that you see or as a leader you should try to achieve? So... Good questions there. I'm going to go with the with an example that I've seen that really blew my mind. Um, and this is this is an act of from the CEO of an organisation called Perpetual Trust, and it was a New, it's a New Zealand based organisation. Um, so I want to give you that example because it really stood out for me. They in 2017 ran a trial where staff could work four days a week and be paid for five. Um, but what what the CEO said to the team leaders was your teams have to figure out as a team how they achieve that because we've got to make sure that we do have cover for the full five days so this is what we want to get to is how can we get teams working to four days that they've got a day off every week but they're still paid for their full participation so these are and and they're not working you know they're not making up those the hours of the fifth day across the other four so they're not working a compressed week they're working four eight-hour days each week but he left so he basically he, he set the target he said this is what we want to achieve you guys go and figure out how between you how you're going to make it work which forced the team to have really honest gritty conversations about if this is what we need to do how do we make it work so that it works for each of us as human beings as parents as homeowners as caregivers as well as team members so they worked it out between them and what they discovered was that um, staff's self-reported ability to effectively balance work and life went from 40, 54% to 78%. Wow. Um, they also increased productivity by about 20%. So think about that. That's pretty phenomenal. It, it, it's um, absolutely. <laughs> and, and staff stress levels decreased by 7 percentage points as well. And our overall satisfaction increased by 5%. So if you think about that just as, a, as an example, and think about overlaying a concept like that into a nonprofit organization and saying to the teams, how would we achieve five days work in four and make sure that there is cover on the ground for five days when our when our clients need us? Right. What would it look like? And that's where, again, remember I talked earlier about giving yourself a framework that allows you to filter out all the noise? This is the kind of thinking that can get you there. You, you you set a really clear objective. We want to work four days. We want to do five, five days work in four, but in you know four eight hour days. How do we make it happen? It give and give people the power to decide how they need to restructure their jobs so that everything is still being taken care of, but they're doing it in a much more effective way. So what they found was that people were cutting back on 
um, needless work that they'd been doing. Exactly. So they cut out all this. Yeah, right. So they cut out all the um, double handling. They found more efficient ways to work. They automated some processes and they spent less time doing personal things on, on the internet. So they actually ended up more engaged and more focused for those four eight hour days a week and everybody was happier because of it so that's that's the most standout example i think i've ever seen it's brilliant I, yeah i had the opportunity to talk to andrew barnes the ceo about it and it was just outstanding um the impact that that had so so that's amazing um well and it's important and it's, to, I, well, sorry to interrupt you because I, go ahead it, it, it I, I like the distinction you made because there's a lot of talk about four day work weeks and reduced mm -hmm. work and obviously the mm -hmm. pandemic has created a lot of hybrid environments and flexible opportunities but some nonprofits say well but yeah in serving our clients we can't take one day off a week but you made that distinction that the leader there said you know no we've got to cover our clients you know, mm -hmm. over the time period, but maybe we don't mm -hmm. have to do it in the same rigid historical time periods. And that exactly. team came back. And I guess I'm I'm encouraging our listeners, Teresa, to, to maybe use that as a strategic planning retreat discussion. <laughs> exactly. Could, could we not <laughs> achieve everything we're doing, maybe even better, but allowing for an environment that is frankly more psychologically safe, uh, assures yeah. trust and is a more rewarding work experience. So that I love that example. Yeah. And clearly you saw it positively as well. Absolutely. And I love your idea of taking that question into retreat and having an, uh, having a conversation about it. Um, the thing I would add there is uh, it's really, so a couple of things I would add there. One is that team members are, are closer to their day-to-day -day job than you are. So it's really important to hear what they say, even if you disagree with it. So often leaders want, their team members to speak up and 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 offer ideas and opinions, um, but when they do, it can be really easy for a leader to say, leader to say, we've done that before and it doesn't work, or right. I disagree, or right. so. And unintentionally, like we just kind of, it's 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 an instinctive reaction, but we are unintentionally shutting people down and telling them that that their opinion doesn't matter. So, I would encourage because um, I think it's a great idea. I would encourage you to, as you take that question away with your team, whether it's a lunch or a meeting or a retreat, if your team come up with ideas around how they can make this work and you think that those are crazy, take a deep breath and say, "Sounds interesting. Tell me how you how we make that work." So just ask another question. Don't make any judgment on it. Ask another. Ask a question to help you understand their thinking, because sometimes in the nub of the craziest ideas, there is an incredible, an incredibly clever solution. I, that's such a good point. I've been in retreats and uh, I've used the phrase that some people will immediately diminish a creative idea by using the royal we. Well, we've mm. tried that before and we've uh, attempted that. And, and you're right. It, it it absolutely kills creativity and frankly, the psychological safety you're talking about. So your point, Teresa, mm. is even if the idea may not be viable now we, we have to create a culture that it's okay to be creative, even if it's not something mm -hmm. we can make happen. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Allowing that exactly. kind of idea. And it's also um you you it's it also goes a little deeper than that. If you allow people to share their ideas and you feel you're ready to field them without judgment, then irrespective of what the team collectively decide is the right way forward. Once you've heard someone's idea, they are more willing to participate, contribute, agree to the the um, the goals that the team end up deciding on collectively, and it's easier to then hold them accountable. 
but at a later date. But if you don't get everyone's ideas up on the table, then you lose their permission to hold them accountable. Well, and I wonder if if some listening who like this concept, but back to your earlier point, but hey, Teresa, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm evaluated on performance. And mm-hmm. as much as I'd love to do more to create an environment, but hey, my bottom line, my evaluation is performance driven. Now, of course, you mm-hmm. partially answered that, but you would suggest that performance doesn't have to suffer in this kind of environment. Performance often actually improves in this kind of environment because... If, if you imagine for a moment that we're, we're comparing here a workplace where people are working hard to get the results versus a workplace where people can work simply to get their results, when people are no longer working hard, they have more energy to invest. That means that the results that you get are often better than the results you'd hoped for. Right. That's what we all want. But I Exactly. I, so going... it feels... Look, honestly, I know this as a leader because I have felt this as a leader. It feels it feels risky to take a step back. So what I would say is you're not abandoning a focus on performance. You are switching the bulk of your focus from the people who are delivering, from performance, from the outcomes to the people yes. who are actually in charge of creating those outcomes for you. Because when you take care of the people, the profit and the performance takes care of itself. And so what I say to people is... Um, you know, I created this model called the psychological, the psychologically safe performance model. And it has, it's a triangle with performance at the top and psychological safety and trust at the bottom corners. And I say to people, psychological safety and trust are the pillars for performance. Without them, you will not be able to hold performance up and you will not be able to continue to lift it. I couldn't agree more. And you're right. Yeah. It it undermines that performance only mindset, which isn't going to work and certainly isn't going to create a sustainable environment. In fact, uh, you know this well, and, and it affects every sector, but the nonprofit sector in particular has been uh, really hurt by turnover. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the great resignation, the great realignment, whatever you want to call it. But I would mm-hmm. guess you would agree, Teresa, that creating this kind of environment is among the best ways to retain your talent. Absolutely. Because if you're, if you if your focus is primarily um, and the majority of your focus is on performance, then you lose sight of the humanity of the people who are having to show up to sustain that performance and your people become that they start to feel disengaged. They start to feel like a commodity because you start to treat them like a commodity. So if you treat your people like a commodity, they'll act like one. Yes. Um, but you, they, you know, people, people want to know first that you care, right? So people don't, people don't care what you know until they know that you care, is is the old saying. Yeah, exactly. But, but if you treat, if, if you're so focused on performance that you forget or neglect your people, then your people always, at best, become disengaged, at worst, become burnt out, and ultimately, either way, will end up leaving. So if you want to reverse staff churn, the best thing you can do is to switch your performance. So switch your focus around so that it's 20% performance, 80% on the people who are driving that performance. And how to create, as a leader, how to create an environment that enables them to do that as quickly and as effectively uh, and as powerfully as possible. Because when you focus on people, you're demonstrating day in, day out that, your pe- that they matter to you. And humans, first and foremost, we only have two modes of operation. We operate from a place of protection or a place of connection. So we are what our brains, our entire systems are wired for survival, not 
enjoyment. So if we feel at risk and burnt out, we will choose our survival over loyalty to the business or the organization. Makes total so, sense. Yeah, right. So if we want to prevent burnout, then we need to we need to recognize when people are in that protection mode. And we, you know, we need to be able to recognize behaviors that indicate that people are in a self-preservation, self-protection mode so that we can start to ask questions that coax them back from self-preservation and protection into connection mode, which is where they actually start to connect with others. They feel safe enough to engage. They can redirect their energy on protection into connection instead and into generating and contributing. Well, let me ask you this. I, I'm thinking of, of tactical ways to employ what you describe. And uh, certainly mm-hmm. if if all, the only thing I evaluate my team is based on performance metrics, I'm reinforcing mm-hmm. that negative environment you described. So in my evaluation, do I need to create other metrics that are perhaps less performance outputs? Um, but how, how can I literally demonstrate that as a leader? It seems to me there are ways I could look for things that would help my team feel like, all right, he's not just looking at performance metrics. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And it can be, you know, it's also the answers I could give you are quite vast and detailed, yeah, right. but I'll, 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 I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. The first is, um, and since you talk about um, performance measures, let's talk about um, annual performance reviews, right? Yeah, we all grew exactly. up with annual performance reviews. Um, and any of us who have had children will know that we wouldn't, you know, if our kids put their put their feet um, on the sofa, we don't wait till the end of the year to tell them that that wasn't a good idea. You know, <laughs> right. we catch them in the moment, right? right. So, um, so one of the things that a leader can do is to facilitate a culture of trust within their span of control. So that means their team, their stakeholders, and the systems that they use to get their work done. And one of those, one of the key systems is performance reviews. But instead of when you do them annually, they can feel really punitive. And that's, you know, that's the old command and control way of leading. If you, right, if you want them to feel really um, productive and constructive, if you want people to learn and adapt so that they can continue to add greater value to the organization, then you need to be giving feedback little and often throughout the year. So as a leader, one of the shifts that you can make is give team members feedback about what they're doing well, what they could do more of, and one thing maybe they could change after after any meeting or you know, regularly in one-to-one meetings, if you're doing those every week or fortnight, but certainly after a big meeting or um, once they've completed a project or you know any opportunity that you have to provide feedback to, as, as a course correcting measure and as an encourage as, as a developmental opportunity rather than a you know a zero sum right or wrong binary once a uh, year too as you said and i yeah i've seen exactly that Teresa. i think we tend to let sometimes as leaders we let things simmer right we don't deal with it and we assume that well i'll i'll save that for the review Um, but your point is that creates an uncomfortable environment for the entire year right or long periods of time so you're telling leaders to increase the i guess the frequency of those interactions absolutely right Absolutely. Because here's the thing, we often tend to avoid giving feedback because it feels really uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable because we leave it so long, we sit on it, it becomes a big deal, you know. So if you and I are having a, if you and I go into a meeting, and something goes wrong, something feels uncomfortable, we come out, and you want to give me feedback, I want you to give me that feedback. I want to know how I can improve, because I want to be, I want to be the best member of this team that I can be. So I want you to give me feedback. And I'd rather you give it to me now, 
and say and 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 give it to me um, based on my needs for development rather than your views. So by that I mean, you know, whenever we give feedback, it's about having helping someone ultimately to become a stronger, more effective member of the team and to develop their own skill set. We're not we're not giving them feedback to make them wrong because that doesn't help anyone. So how do we give feedback in a way that's really de- developmental? So as an example, you know, you could say to me, hey, you know, I noticed in that meeting that you you, you were really great at setting up. You you know you had great rapport with the client, um, but as we closed, you started to you started to trail off. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what what happened there, or is this, is how were you feeling in that moment? How do right. you know is there something you'd like to work on next time around? How how do we unpack that so that you can end up finishing those those meetings on a really strong note? Two things that you did well. Really de- yeah, correct, sorry. Right? That. And no, you no need to apologize, but it's a, you know, but, but it's a, um, you know, how, how do we make sure that next time you have a meeting like that, you're ending the meeting well, like what can I, you know, what's going on there and how can I help as opposed to, man, you really, you sucked in that meeting, you know, like, or oh, that was really awkward, or I think you need to do better next time. You know, none of that is productive, right? right? Yeah. So, and here's the thing is that we all as team members and as leaders have opinions on how people are performing their work. It's more helpful if we think about how the opinions and feedback we have can be used to de- to further develop the skills of the people that we're about to to share it with. Because feedback is uninvited, right? Um, so f- if you're going to give someone uninvited feedback, it needs to be valuable for them, not valuable to you, but valuable to them right, and for and, them. Well, and several things you did that I thought are noteworthy in, in a leader in a coaching environment that leaders indeed our coaches one you didn't attack you started mm-hmm. with a positive in fact here's something positive mm-hmm. i saw from the meeting and then you uh, raised an issue that likely the person would acknowledge could be improved mm-hmm. and you asked for their feedback as well right instead of just me telling mm-hmm. you exactly what to do in a kind of prescriptive and punitive way you mm-hmm. encourage a dialogue because i i would suggest exactly. most people want to get better. And if they feel like this is a collaborative and trust-based process, they're going to have ideas of, you know what, you're right, Teresa, I could have done better. Here's what I'm thinking about doing next time. And that Mm. is kind of what you're going for, it sounds like. Exactly. And the other thing is, as well, is if we have a conversation like that, it opens the door for me to say, you know what, Patton, there was something that that person said that that really triggered me. It made me feel deeply uncomfortable. Right. And that threw me. Right, you wouldn't you wouldn't get to that you wouldn't get to hear that from me if you just shut me down by telling me what you think I should do differently. Such a good point, and you're right. right. I think the top down kind of hierarchical kind of history that many organizations have and many leaders grew up in, and sadly they replicate. They don't allow mm-hmm. for that dialogue. And well, something else, yeah. Teresa, I've seen, and, and and tell me what you think. The best leaders I've interacted with also. While they, again, expect performance and accountability, they're also very intentional about professional development. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen this. In other words, how can we help you, Teresa, be a stronger leader in whatever role you're in? Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe that's part of the metrics we follow. All right. Um, But do you see that or do you need to see more of that? We need to see more of it collectively. And I think traditionally there may have been um, a concern that if we if we develop people, then they will have expectations beyond their station. Yes, right. Or expectations that we can't then fulfill, you know? So a couple of things on that point. One is um, 
On the development side, one of the things that can really help the staff churn, and in fact, one of the things that people complain about, um, and, and this has been pretty consistent over the last few years, is that they are seeking career development. They are seeking ongoing learning and development. So when you don't have a lot to play with in terms of remuneration, you can actually provide learning and development and career development for your team members as a way to show them that they are valued and that their contribution to the organization matters. And um, just to touch back on the comment about how reluctant we can be sometimes to provide growth opportunities when we're unsure that we can actually give them anywhere to grow into um, from a role perspective, the alternatives to that are there are always stretch assignments that we can give. There are always projects and initiatives. So growth, you know, we, we grew up in a time where growth felt like it was up a career ladder. It doesn't necessarily need to be that way anymore. And in fact, a lot of people want um, lateral growth. So they want to develop skills in other areas. They want to follow passion projects. They want to do things that are meaningful for them. They they Some people just are less, enga- less invested in <clears throat> climbing a career ladder and getting to the next rung. So for some people, it's about the work more than the acceleration of a career. So, um, and irrespective, you you can have some incredible lateral moves that give you um, incredible opportunities to develop your skills and your career in your profession, whilst also um, unlocking incredible value and opportunities for the organisation as well. So. Um, I've seen, some, yeah, I've seen some of my clients do this as well. So they look at growth as, you know, so they ask the question, what does growth look like for you? What, where do you want your career to go? So you have to have a career conversation with your team as well around, you know, what is it that you want? What does a great career look like for you? Because it could be really different for, from what I think you might want or from what I want for myself. So um, when you understand that, you also have an understanding of how to open up those opportunities for your staff member and that also has positive impacts around employee engagement and staff retention so it's a really valuable conversation to have well uh, lots of things to underline there one in particular the, your your concept of lateral opportunities because you're right in a small mm. nonprofit the ladder may be limited you can't go any mm. further up you're the chief fundraiser for the organization and so are you left with all right i must have to go somewhere else but I've in, in our mastermind program, we've talked to some very talented leaders who've done exactly what you said. That fundraiser may well want lateral skill building, and maybe they could mm-hmm. work uh, with the finance team and improve their financial management skills, or maybe they could help with a project like you described, strategic planning or some new initiative for growth. And that's that's Absolutely. that's wonderful. You and, and of course, I've had occasionally a leader say, "Well, if I invest too much." they're in that person they're going to leave but of course i'm like well if they yeah. if if they leave good for them they're going to leave anyway if you starve them of this professional development and the other thing too <laughs> you create yeah uh, teresa a, a culture that others are going to want to come work for you right if, exactly if, you know it just yeah. seems so limiting but anyway i'm, I'm just it's, glad i wonder yeah what else would you add to that professional development well, maybe theme <laughs> I did want to add, because I think you make a really good point. And there is this saying out there, you know, what if I invest in them and they leave? And the answer is, what if you don't and they stay? Right. So there is Great that aspect point. of it. Um, but also, if you invest in people and they leave, then they're leaving on the really good terms. Um, they're, y- y- the people around them see that you have invested in them and, you know, it's it's time for them to move on. 
But when they leave, it creates opportunities for other people to either enter the organization or to move through the organization. So it's never a zero sum. It only becomes a zero sum game when we when we think of it that way. So um, what I mean, what I've experienced in my career when I when I left one job. In fact, when I left my job as head of marketing at Hasbro, I found my replacement because I was leaving on such good terms. Nice. So. It's a yeah. So the relationships that you have with your staff, whether they stay or leave, the relationships are really important. And one of the things that I, one of the mistakes I see a lot of leaders making, particularly in the last few years, is um, is, is in how they manage their team members' exits. Because how a team member exits your organisation can have serious consequences for the team members who remain. So if you've if you've invested in a, in a team member and they leave then at least, as I said before, at least they're leaving um, for good reasons. You know, they're not leaving because they're burnt out, they're disenfranchised, you know, there's bullying in the organisation. So people always do leave. We only ever hire people for their skills for a period of time. That's um, a great, that's such a good takeaway, so, Teresa, because I've seen in many, many cases, unfortunately, that departure handled very poorly, which of mm -hmm. course has a lingering and negative effect on everybody that still remains. And so, again, mm. to me, it, it, your advice is well taken. As a leader, I need to manage exits well. And, and I guess mm -hmm. that means Absolutely. even if I'm not thrilled by it, I mean, it, it, conducting an exit interview or making sure that the, the, the transition, I guess, is as smooth as can be. But mm -hmm. you tell me, what, what do you mean by, I guess, managing the, that a exit in a way that's, yeah, exactly. So... Um... <clears throat> you're managing for um, dignity and safety, really. So when the person who is leaving is leaving, you want to be able to, you know, create some kind of a send-off um, that feels dignified and acknowledges the value that they've uh, offered up to the organisation. So a really great way to do this is to capture the um, comments and feedback from the people that they've worked most closely with, whether it's internal or external to the organisation. Um, but just comments around what did we love about working with you? What did we learn from you whilst we were working with you? Nice and touch. What, yeah. And, yeah, and what do we wish you for the future? So those are really simple ways to acknowledge someone, right? There is incredible value in being seen always, but particularly when you're about to leave. Because when you leave, it's kind of, um, particularly if you've been at an organization for a while, it can be a bit wrenching to leave an organization, no matter what the circumstances. Right. And when you, um, it's also a period of vulnerability for the person who's leaving and the people who stay behind. Um, so it's so create asking those questions and letting people contribute that way is a really great way to demonstrate um, care and connection throughout the team. So that kind of turns it from something that feels a bit negative into something that feels like a celebration. Um, and then the other thing a leader can do is look at, okay, so what does this mean for uh, for the team that stays behind? So right. how do we how do we manage so that we don't have survivor guilt? Uh, how do we manage so that people aren't thinking, gosh, am I next? Or what does that mean? Or should I be leaving? Or does that mean I've, I now have to pick up their workload? So having a conversation with the team around, okay, so how do we how do we navigate? You know, how do we cover whilst we wait? for backfill or is this an opportunity or but just having conversations with the team to make sure that um there's transparency around around that that exit process that's so well put well, and, and such good advice because again i think a lot of leaders insecure leaders i would suggest they move immediately to the the new hiring process and, and mm. it, the, everything's left in mystery we and and mm -hmm. what you're describing is just a more 
uh, transparent process, uh, acknowledging and celebrating the departure, which, by the way, assures a community partner, right? This person leaves uh -huh. our organization, likely is still connected in some way. And of course, exactly. that reinforce everybody that remains. So that's exactly, particularly brilliant. in the sector, right? And in the exactly. sector, people stay in the sector and relationships matter. And the irony is that we avoid handling exits this way because we it just feels awkward we just want it to be over as quickly as possible right. to move on right but but in trying to avoid the awkwardness we actually prolong the awkwardness and um and so actually so it's, you know there are such some and this is this is the case with all of the work that we do there are simple ways to make this feel easier more fun more enjoyable and you know more human a hundred times more human so yes. there are easier ways for us to be leading. You've carried that theme throughout our conversation. It's so important, and I'm delighted you have. And I, I do want to lift up before we close, you have written a wonderful book called The Currency Connection. Talk about what mm -hmm. that book in general is about and how it might benefit a nonprofit leader listening. Sure. So um, this book is essentially, it's, it's, it's the book that I wish someone had given me 20 years ago. Um, because I really wanted to under, better understand how trust is built and why it matters to, pe to, to businesses and the people who work inside them. Um, but it's it's a collection of um, literature review, my experiences working with clients, all of the reading and learning and education that I've done, and it's constructed in three different sections, self, social, and organizational. So you can dip in at whatever point feels most relevant for you at the time. Um, but it's weird. It's basically it's, it's the most accessible resource I have for people who want to understand how to build trust uh, for themselves in the relationships that they live and work with, and from the perspective of leadership as well. So it explains in there all of the reasons why psychological safety and trust are so important to performance, um, and it gives great tools for how to begin building it, and um, and really simple first steps to take. So it's. The benefit of it is that a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about are contained within that book, um, and it's the best first way to to learn more about psychological safety, trust, and performance before you then go any further. That's fantastic. I'm delighted to lift it up in the show notes for this episode. And uh, as you. you said, uh, someone listening now that has their wheels turning in terms of being a better leader around psychological safety, your book the currency connection will help give them the practical mm -hmm. steps to do just that. And mm -hmm. I, I guess, again, this has been fantastic, Teresa, and lots of advice for our listeners to ponder. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on or that you would reinforce yeah. for someone thinking about nonprofit leadership? Absolutely. So one of the things that I think um, nonprofit leaders really uh, one of the greatest assets I think they have is that people join nonprofits because there is something about that organization that they deeply care about and connect to. So um, my advice for nonprofit leaders is really recognize the benefit of that deep motivation that people join with and harness it and look to just continue to nurture it and um, and build it because the energy that comes from that is phenomenal and it's more than you can ever pay to achieve. Um, but also if you, if, if, if you're listening to this and you are really interested in the topics that we've discussed, then consider um, consider connecting with me or following me on LinkedIn, but specifically seek out my Psych Safety Project newsletter on LinkedIn because that's where I talk about how you put this kind of work into practice. 
So um, that's and that's free, right? So <laughs> there's no, no excuse no for not starting for up. Yeah. Well, and, and you've <laughs> yeah. got some great resources. In fact, we're going to link up to them. And I know you'll talk to that in a minute. Yeah. And speaking of resources, of course, we got your book that we're going to lift up and make sure people mm-hmm. can find that. But talk about, as you know, I ask every guest, has there been a book meaningful to you on your journey, Teresa, that you might also recommend to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. And I will admit that this was on my reading list for, I think, five years before I actually <laughs> bought it. And and then when I bought it, I almost wore out my highlighters going through it. I was like, oh, I should have done this sooner. It's it's great. It's um, It's one of those books that is really inside out in terms of uh, examining leadership from an, from an inter, you know the internal work of leadership to the external um, applications of leadership and how you then engage teams and 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 more. It's just incredible. I love it's it. Fantastic, and it's on the mm. bookshelf behind me. I'm so glad you're the first guest that has <laughs> lifted that book up. So you and I share an enthusiasm for it and uh, yeah. for that and everything you provided, uh, Teresa. I'm grateful. Um, again, tell us and tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and the great work you're doing. Sure. Um, Please feel free to connect or follow me on LinkedIn. Um, Come across and visit us at aurocollective.space. If you add forward slash and the name of this podcast as well, you're going to see a special offer with a discount for you guys um, to jump in and grab performance partnership (laughs) playbook, which uh, which is just something extra for you if you want to pick it up as well. But please do connect with me, follow me on LinkedIn and consider signing up to the newsletter because... Um, we need to get more of this work out there. Thank you, Teresa, for the work you're doing on a global scale in the for-profit and non-profit arenas. And for all of that, thanks again for joining me on The Path. Thank you so much for having me on this path with you, Pat. And it's been such a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Teresa as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your leadership journey and in particular help you better develop psychological safety and trust at your nonprofit organization. Don't forget to check out the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Teresa, the work she's doing at the Oro Collective, and links to some wonderful resource material. As always, share this episode with somebody else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Go to patmcdowell.com. You can find it on the follow button. Follow means subscribe, and you won't miss any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, click on the episodes button. You can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.